You probably looked already in the bulletin and saw that, wow, he's got a big chunk to cover today. This isn't the biggest chunk of scripture we'll cover in the next few weeks. Uh, um, but what I'm going to do this morning is, you know, I'm not going to go verse by verse and explain every verse to you, um, but we are going to look at it as a whole, take out some principles from it and apply them to our lives according to Christ and his work in our hearts. For our reading this morning, however, it would take me the entire half an hour to read through it. So what we're going to do is we're going to back up to verse 18 of chapter 20, and then I'll stop a few verses into today's passage there around verse 24 or so. I'll remind you that Israel has now come to Sinai. They are gathered around the mountain and God has spoken to them in their hearing the Ten Commandments and this is how they respond. Let's give our attention to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired and inerrant word beginning in chapter 20, verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and I will bless you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for sustaining it for us, passing it down through the ages that we might have it even today. We've heard it read. Our ears have heard. Father, we pray for more than physical hearing. We pray for spiritual understanding. We ask that you, by the power and the ministry of your Holy Spirit, that you would take this word and that you would apply it to our hearts. Help us, O oh God. Teach us and train us, correct us, rebuke us for righteousness' sake. Make us more like Jesus. Lord, change our hearts. Mold our wills unto yours. Transform our minds. Lead us, O oh God, to love you and to love others better. Father, help me, your servant. Lord, would you protect me from error? Help me to speak clearly. O oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you. You are our God and our Redeemer. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. When 67-year-old carpenter Russell Herman died, it was 1994, he left a will, and his will included a staggering number of bequests. Included, among many others, I'll just share a few, included in his plan for distribution was more than $2 billion for the city of East St. Louis, Illinois. Included was another billion and a half for the state of Illinois, two and a half billion for the national forest system, and to top off the list, Herman left $6 trillion to the U.S. government to help pay off the national debt. That was 1994. Was it that much then? I don't remember. But either way, that's what he left. That sounds amazingly generous, doesn't it? There's only one problem, perhaps one significant problem. Herman died with only one asset to his name, his much-beloved 1983 Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme. Suffice it to say, that wasn't enough to pay what he said he would. Why do I tell you that? To underscore the truth that making promises is easy. Making promises is easy. After all, promises are just words, right? It's just a string of words. We can promise the whole world to someone with our words. But those who know God, those who fear God, and those who love God's word, these know that promises are more than just words. Promises are windows into hearts, Promises are guarantees in waiting. Promises may be light with words, but they are heavy with intent. After all, if promises were only just mere words, it wouldn't hurt so bad when they're broken, would it? Making promises is easy. Keeping promises is hard. Throughout the Bible, we see the people of Israel learning this very lesson. Making promises is easy. Keeping promises is hard. When God begins to establish his covenant with Moses and the people back in Exodus 19, he tells them very clearly that if they will indeed obey his voice, if they will keep his covenant, they shall be his treasured possession. He says, you'll be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. And do you remember how they responded? Look back in chapter 19, verse 8. Turn there with me. Chapter 19, verse 8. All the people answered together and they said, one voice. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Everything that the Lord has said, we will do it. This isn't the only time they'll make such a promise. As we'll see in more detail next week, they make the same type of promise again. Actually, they do it twice. After they receive the Ten Commandments and all these laws that follow, they make this promise again in chapter 24, verse 3, and chapter 24, verse 7. They, they make that promise. Again, you can look there if you want, but this is essentially what it says. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. In verse 7, they take it up a notch. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. 
Making such a promise is easy. The question is, can Israel keep this promise? Can Israel keep such a promise? Most of us understand that the answer to that question, I see some of you shaking your heads, is like, no, no. The people are unable. We know that. They're unable to keep such a promise in and of themselves. That's true. But that truth does not, however, nullify the content of what they are promising to do. I'll put it another way. Their lack of obedience to God's law does not nullify the truth of God's law. Sure, in the scope of all of redemptive history as it's presented in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, we know that God has a solution for all of our inabilities. Praise God. But that solution never calls for a complete disregard for that which is dear to him. And what is that? What's dear to God? That we would be a kingdom of priests. That we would be a holy nation. We'd be a people who loves him by loving his word. Loving his word by both delighting in it and arranging our lives according to it. By living for him. That's why this morning we're going to take some time to consider this very lengthy passage before us, to consider God's heart for his people, and to consider how we can live in ways that honor and glorify him, and to help us navigate the context of these chapters. I'll give you an outline to help you, a roadmap on our way there. So first, I want us to consider the structure of the passage, the structure of the passage. Second, we'll consider the principles that lie within, maybe you might say underneath this passage, the principles that lie within this passage. And lastly, we'll consider the application of the principles from this passage to our lives today. So let's begin with the structure of 2022 through 2319. So remember last week we covered 21 through 21. That's commonly called the 10 commandments or as I pointed out last week, the 10 words, the Decalogue, 10 words. These 10 commandments contain what we refer to now commonly as the moral law. In fact, our catechism asks, where is the moral law summarily comprehended, right? In the 10 commandments is where we understand God's moral law. The passage that follows beginning in verse 22 through 2319 contain what is formally called the book of the covenant. Some call it the covenant code. Okay. It's, it's called the book of the covenant. Now theologians didn't invent that name. They didn't come up with that name on their own. It actually is right there in your text in chapter 24, verse seven. We were just there earlier. You see, after Moses receives all the laws given in this passage and all this, he returns to the people and then he reads them to the people. And in 24-7, they are called, look there, the book of the covenant. So this passage has a name, the book of the covenant. The various laws in this book are referred to technically as rules and ordinances throughout the passage. I'll spare you too many details, but the, the Hebrew word used here when speaking of this rule or ordinance is one that points to a case decision that rests on a prior precedent. I'll put it another way. 
The laws contained in the book of the covenant deal with specific social and specific economic contexts, whereas the Ten Commandments don't do that. Remember, the Ten Commandments are absolute principles, but these rules contained here are applications of those principles. You have the the principles of the law, what the law is, and then you have the application of the law. I like how Dr. John Currid summarizes this, and I'll quote what he says. He says, the book of the covenant is descriptive law that is based upon the prescriptive law of the Ten Commandments. He continues, the Ten Commandments are the enunciation of fundamental legal principles that need to be applied to society. They are primary, they are permanent, they are absolute truth. He goes on, the book of the covenant, on the other hand, is an application of those 10 commandments to the specific context of Israel as a nation. They are therefore derivative and valid only for their age. So there's the law that is universal and absolute for all time. And then there's the question, how do we live out that law? And so God gives them precepts, rules, ordinances of how to live out this law in the context of the nation of Israel. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand, so please don't. Neither Dr. Currid nor myself are saying that these laws are not helpful, are not instructional for today. If I really believed they weren't helpful at all, we'd skip right over it, right? But it's God's word. It is instructional for us. They are instructional. Rather, what we're saying is that they are not absolutely transferable to today. For those of you who've studied this in theology, you know that we call these civil laws. There's civil law, ceremonial law, moral law. These are civil laws, laws given to order life under the nation of Israel. Laws that describe how they are to apply those principles, the absolutes of the Ten Commandments. So when we study these laws, we're not looking to see how we can reinstitute them and all their details back in our world today exactly as they were written. Rather, we're looking to discover the principles that they apply. And in turn, we're seeking to apply those principles today in light of the new covenant reality in Jesus Christ, under which we now live. And some of you are like, whoa. He just took like a three-hour seminary course and put it into three minutes. The moral law is absolutely applicable in its total for all time. It's God's law, all of them. The ceremonial law, those were fulfilled in Christ. All the sacrifices, all the worship fulfilled in him. The civil law showed us how to live under the light of God's moral law. And so there was law for Israel. There's law today, right? We actually take a lot of these principles and apply them in our country today and other countries do as well. The civil laws aren't bad, they're good, but they're not 100% transferable to today. But you're wondering, well, how do I know then how to do that? Well, thankfully, if you know your New Testament, you know, this is exactly what the New Testament authors do for us. Even Jesus helps us to understand that. So perhaps we could have a seminar on that as we've done seminars in the past, a seminar on the civil law. I'm looking at my elders who like to teach those seminars. Perhaps we could do that sometime. 
Let's get back to the technical structure of the book of the covenant. Um, Technically, it's actually pretty straightforward. If you were to outline it, you'd outline it pretty simply. It begins in 23 through 26 with direct application of the first two commandments, with rules concerning Israel's worship. Here we see a blending of civil and ceremonial law, right? Which is pretty common. But not surprisingly, as this is common in Hebrew literature to do this, it actually closes with similar things in 23, 10 through 19. So you had rules about the altars and worship related to the first and second commandment at the beginning. Toward the end, we get rules concerning Israel's observance of the Sabbath and of the various feasts that they were giving. So now we look at applications of the third and fourth commandment, how Israel's to live, not just first two, but the first four beginning and end. It's the hug that appears in this a lot. God-centered, God-focused at the beginning and the end. Remember last week what we said about the first four commandments. They are horizontal, right? Excuse me, vertical in nature. I need more sleep, obviously. Uh, It relates to us and God, up and down, right? The last six, horizontal in nature, how we relate to one Another. So that's how it begins and ends. Between those two passages, so from 21.1 through 23.9, for those of you who are trying to keep up and take notes here, 21.1 to 23.9, there are laws based on commandments 6 through 10, laws governing how Israel is to live with and among one another. So again, remember that horizontal nature. In verses 1 through 11 of chapter 21, we have laws concerning slaves. And of course, immediately all our sirens go off, right? We're like, wait a minute, what? Laws concerning Hebrew slaves. Now, just as a side note really quickly here, this is not slavery as we experienced in our history. Uh, this, that, sorry, that uh, in our history was man-stealing. The Bible calls that man-stealing. That's something expressly forbidden throughout scripture. In fact, if you just look with me, at 21.16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. That's repeated throughout the scriptures. The slavery mentioned here, the Hebrew slave, is vocationally based, okay? It's vocationally based. It was servitude, uh, people working, selling themselves to others to work to pay off a debt or to have their basic needs provided for. Uh, to be a worker within someone's home. And in fact, uh, you read this, you see that you could even have people in your family. I owe that family something. I'll give them my daughter or my son to work for them, right? There's this idea that it was family, communal, and it was meant to help one another, to help pay off debts. Provisions were given in exchange for work. All right, 12 through 36 contain laws about capital offenses, like murder and other things. Chapter 22, 1 through 15, there are laws about personal property. 22, 16 through 20, there are laws about personal holiness. And in 22, 21 through 23, 9, there are laws concerning various social injustices. Law after law after law, rule after rule after rule. Some are pretty straightforward. Some leave you scratching your head. You shall not boil a baby in its mother's milk. Talking about goats, baby goat in its mother's milk. You're like, huh? Law after law after law, rule after rule after rule. If you haven't read them, you need to. It's God's word. 
It's God's word. Read it if you haven't. Because they're God's word, as I've already said this morning, they reveal truth about him. Rather than going law after law after law and rule after rule after rule, we can take them in total and we can learn some truths about God. That's what I want us to consider in our second point this morning. So we see how they're structured. Now I want us to see the principles that lie within these verses. And we'll take a look at some of these as we go along. The first principle these laws reveal about God, if you want to take this down, the first principle relates to the sanctity of life and the image of God. First is the sanctity of life in the image of God. Because people are made in the image of God. That is, people are God's special creation. We were made to reflect him in this world. We are image bearers because we're made in his image. People matter. People matter to God. Therefore, laws regarding how people treat one another are good and necessary. When we read the thing about Hebrew slaves, we see that they're to be treated with dignity and respect, so much so that there's even an appointed time limit for them to serve. If you look at just 21.2, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. Even as a servant, as a worker, six years, and then you're set free. Also, you'll see that the very life of others was to be held in high regard. Murder is obviously forbidden. Look down at 21.12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Murder is forbidden. But notice that in cases of malice or premeditation, we might call first-degree murder, it is punishable by death, even. This form of death penalty was not based on vengefulness, but rather on the already established principle of Scripture. You can mark this down and look there later. Genesis 9, 6, long before this, God had already said, whoever sheds man's blood, his blood will be shed by man, for God made man in his image. Maybe this is another topic for a seminar on a Sunday morning, but whatever you believe about the death penalty, at least get this principle. People matter to God because they're made in his image and how we treat people is important to God. Believe it or not, this right here was distinctive to Israel. This was very distinctive to Israel. In other ancient Near Eastern cultures, and they have like Hammurabi's code and some of these other things that they found, law codes that even predate this, Did you know that crimes related to property and personal possessions were punishable by death? Whereas capital offenses like murder could be easily paid off depending on one's social status. So get this, they believed that what one possessed was more valuable than the one who possessed it. That the thing was of worth more value than the life. This isn't so in Israel. People matter to God. They're made in his image. This principle of the sanctity of life and the image of God continues throughout the book of the covenant, especially with regard to what I want to note is our second principle. God's heart, God's compassion for the poor and the needy. 
I want you to look with me. Let's look at 22, 21 through 27. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were also sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or orphan. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with a sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. If you, excuse me, if ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down for that is his only covering and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries out to me, I will hear for I am compassionate. Look at chapter 23, verses six through nine. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You see, God absolutely cares for the foreigner. He cares for the widow. He cares for the orphan. He cares for the poor. And it's not unique to the book of the covenant. It is found all over the Bible, Old and New Testament alike. In fact, God calls himself the God of the widow, the God of the orphan, the God of the sojourner. He identifies himself as that way. God has compassion on all those who are made in his image. And he calls his people to have the same compassion. Think about the life of the Lord Jesus. He not only lived out this truth, but he continued to teach it to us. And then we see it lived out through the life of the apostles and the lives of those in the early church. Even to today, it's a hallmark of Christian testimony that we would love the poor and the needy, that we would love the widow and the orphan. Christians are called to care, to be compassionate, to love the foreigner, to love the widow, to love the orphan, to love the naked, the hungry, the outcast, and the oppressed. God's heart should be our heart as well. The third principle these laws reveal about God relates to respect and mutual dependence within the community. I'll put it simply, the people of God were called to honor one another while living among one another. Remember, there's 600,000 men plus the women and the children. It's about 2 million people. We talked about all the cases that must have been coming to Moses and the others, how hard it was to live together in community. God wants them to live well and to honor one another within community. And this obviously begins at home. 2115, if you turn back there, Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. God takes the fifth commandment seriously, obviously. Children are to honor their father and the mother. God takes it seriously. If we can't respect and love our parents, how will we respect and love God? How will we respect and love others? This principle extends even to how we love and serve our neighbors. You see included in these laws regarding personal property and social injustice, 
There is the underlying theme, and you'll see it over and over again as you read, of something called restitution. If someone steals from you or otherwise violates the the property or interests of you or others, that person and that person alone was to go and make right the wrong, to restore what was stolen or lost, even at a multiple magnitude. Do you see that? There was no hiding behind some process. There was no hiding away and stuffing people away. No, it was, I've done this wrong. It's upon me and the judges of Israel to make me go to you if I have done this and I have to make it right. We have to actually stand face to face and handle this as people living in community. I'm sure that never, ever caused the other things that were mentioned earlier. I'm sure it did, right? Probably lots of fighting, slander, malice, maybe even murder. But either way, God wants us to handle these things as a community, among the community, and that's what he's doing here. He's reminding them, you have wronged. You've sinned against God and God alone, but you've also sinned against your brother. So go and make it right. Generous compensation, publicly bearing shame and then being set free from it when it is done right respecting one another, respecting property, mutual dependence. These are all things that run through here. We need each other. God's people need each other. They must live together in harmony. The fourth and last principle these laws reveal about God might in fact be the most important. The fourth and final, it's probably the most important. Notice where these laws begin. Notice what stands at the very front of the book of the covenant. Go back to 2024. We read it earlier. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. It's interesting in the original language, it's in, in every the place. It's not just a place, it's in every the place. There's already a foreshadowing of the tabernacle that's gonna move with the people. God's gonna have a place for them to go and to offer these sacrifices. But here's this principle, here's the fourth and final. It's the supremacy of God's grace. The supremacy of God's grace. Here as always in the Bible, I want you to notice that the word of grace precedes the word of law. Just as it did in the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of bondage to slavery. Grace preceded law. Here it does the same thing. Grace precedes law. God reminds his people that he's come down to them. He's revealed himself to them to give them his word. And God knows that they cannot keep it on their own. God knows that the people will break his law. So he reminds them of the altar the place where offerings, these burnt offerings, these are sin offerings. He reminds them where these offerings would be made, the place where a sacrifice would be made for their sin. You see, God begins with grace and he ends. He ends, as I said earlier, he ends the book of the covenant with grace too. We'll see his promises in full next week and we're gonna continue through 23 and 24. But even in the ending verses, he points Israel back to his grace reminding them how they're to celebrate that grace. So here's grace, here's the law, and here's the grace again, because that's what you're celebrating is grace. 
and all the laws upon laws upon laws and rules upon rules upon rules. Don't forget that there's grace upon grace upon grace. This entire thing is saturated with grace. The word of grace precedes and it even supersedes the word of the law, even here in the book of the covenant. So that said, let's conclude this morning by listing a few ways that we can take these principles and apply them to our lives today. One way, which I already rejected, was we could just take these laws and say, we gotta do all this again now. Just as it's written, we gotta do it again the same way today. I don't have any ox, so I guess I'm out of that one, right? I don't have any goats, so I don't have to worry about boiling the baby wrong. No, that's, that's not one of the ways, okay? Here's, here's some ways to do that. First, because as I've said, God's law shows that people made in his image matter to him. We should live such that people matter to us as well. It should be a hallmark of who we are. Here at the chapel, we talk a lot about the sanctity of human life. We believe that life begins at conception. So rightly, we oppose any action that unjustly takes the life of a child in the womb. But I want you to hear me that sanctity of life is more than just opposition to infanticide, to abortion. It's more than that. That's good, but it's more than that. The sanctity of life continues from, as one of my pastor friends says, from the womb to the tomb. It's all of life. As Christians, we must uphold that all people are made in God's image. And thus all people are worthy of respect and justice. They're also able to be redeemed. Every human being is able to be redeemed from their sin by Jesus Christ. Just as we have been. The free offer of the gospel goes out to all. We don't know who will respond, but the free offer goes out. We hold it out to everyone. We don't look at a certain group of people and say, not them. They're not worthy of the gospel. We hold out the hope of the gospel to all. So I want you to ask yourself this. How can I uphold the sanctity of human life in my life? How can I do that? A question like this is multifaceted, right? It addresses our thoughts. It addresses our attitudes. It addresses our actions. So how do we think about the sanctity of life? How do we feel about the sanctity of life? And then how we think and feel, how does this move us to action? I can give you a few ways. There's many. You can use your voice. You can speak up, speak out, right? You can speak up and speak out against attacks against the sanctity of life, defend the sanctity of life in a world that readily devalues life. You can get involved with organizations that serve the, the preborn and their mothers and their, their fathers. You can get involved with organizations that serve and support the elderly, the disabled, many others we can think about. Opportunities abound. If you want to talk with someone about those opportunities, come and see me or one of our leaders. But it's not just what you do, it's how you think and how you feel about the sanctity of life. I want to challenge you there. Second, because God's law not only shows that people made in his image matter to him, but also that he's compassionate about their welfare, we should actively seek for ways to honor and love those in our midst who are in need. You can give of your time, your talents, your treasures, to meet the needs of the poor and the needy. You can do as 
Some in our congregation do. You can work with the foreigners in our midst. You can work and love and serve the widow and the orphan. You can feed and clothe the naked and the hungry. We can share our lives and share the gospel with any who are in need. And there are needs all around us. Do you know that? If not, you need to open your eyes. There are needs all around us. How has God called you to serve? Third, and and this is final, because God's law begins and ends with notes of grace. I want to challenge you to make grace the supreme focus of your life as well. It's too easy to make promises. It is way too easy to make promises to God, to ourselves, to make promises to others. I mean, that's really easy. Like Israel, we can hear all that God requires from us and we can walk away and we can say, I can do that. I'll do that. All that God has said, I will do. I surrender all, all to the I owe. I surrender all. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. I got this. But how long does it take to break that promise? If you're like me, that doesn't take long at all. It's very easy to break promises. The the reality, though, is long after our promises are broken, the demands of God's law remain. They don't go away. And while we continue to strive to serve him, to be faithful, to be obedient, and those are good things, but while we do this, we're going to fail. Some of you are like, I don't fail. I don't like to fail. You're going to fail. We will fall because we're sinful. We're human. We need grace. So thanks be to God that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. God's grace supersedes the demands of his law. In his grace, he sent Jesus to live and to die and to rise again for us. Jesus came born under the law and he kept this law perfectly. And now by his spirit, he not only gives us his righteousness, but he enables us to live for him and to serve him. And he promises to see us through, to to pick us up when we fail, right? To help us so that when we triumph, it's in him. He's promised to work in us and through us so that we might be a blessing to others, even when we so often hurt and fail others. You see, Jesus does what you and I are incapable of doing. He keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. He's never failed and he never will. So though we are still called to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves, even though we still live under that and we strive to do that, we can't do it in our own strength. We can't do it perfectly. We need his grace. Brothers, sisters, you need his grace. Only his grace will see you through. Amen and amen.